Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 5, Episode 4 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we dissected Napoli's social media debacle, we unpacked Marseille's civil unrest, we discussed Taki Kubo's Iron Robin-esque inevitability and we explored Union Berlin's recent four-match losing streak in the Bundesliga. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is of course produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Just one last piece of housekeeping before we let the episode take centre stage. We are approaching a very significant landmark for the podcast in terms of the number of downloads so if you have not already done so please do consider leaving us a review please do consider giving us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts and do consider sharing this episode and the podcast generally with a friend or with somebody in your family we would be extremely grateful and yeah it would help us to grow the podcast even more Anyway, I will now let the episode take centre stage. Hopefully you learn a thing or two or perhaps even three. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks as always for your continued support. Enjoy. feels like a rare occurrence but for once we have all three of us in the virtual room together at the same time we've got Rudy Barlow who is itching to get to the gym after we record this episode and we've got Michael Jones who's wearing a, a turtleneck so maybe I'll just be itching anyway I'll come to you in a minute Michael but Barlow how are things how is Madrid treating you? Yeah not too bad I don't know if I'd say I'm itching to get to the gym I don't I think that's very very rare occurrence in my life but um, intending to go to the gym we'll see how those intentions last good intentions do tend to to fade but not too bad uh, holiday coming up on Friday so we're counting down the days before the south of Spain calls me down the coast Ali how are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Barlow. I do wish that I had a trip to the south of Spain planned, but sadly, I don't have any such trips in the diary. Yeah, I do. I do take my hat off to you training in Madrid, even at this time. I know it is now October, but it must still be fairly warm. I remember training in a gym in Strasbourg. It was in the basement uh, July time, and it was it was a very difficult session, to put it lightly. Michael Jones is laughing. Uh, not quite sure what he's laughing at, but I'll come to you now, Michael. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm better now. I've just imagined you uh, working out in a sweaty basement in Strasbourg. But I know. No, the turtleneck is, um, yeah, this is also holiday inspired, having just been up to Shetland for a few days. Not quite as exotic as the south of Spain, but nevertheless, very fascinating. And um, yeah, I think I've come back dressing much more ready for winter than I was when I went out there. Yeah, very nice, Michael. I was enjoying your photos from that trip. It looked very wholesome and it looked as if the weather just about held out 
for you for the most part. Okay, well, Shetland, south of Spain, all very exotic locations, but perhaps not quite as exotic as Marseille. Michael, I think Marseille is a good place for us to start in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. And they're never really too far away from the headlines. After picking up a draw on Europa League duty in Amsterdam against Ajax, in a veritable crisis club derby, the nine times champions of France were then thumped 4-0 by Paris Saint-Germain in a decidedly one-sided edition of Le Classique. Those results were set against the backdrop of significant civil unrest at the Velodrome, with Marcelino resigning after just three months in charge for non-sporting reasons, and the local prosecutor opened up preliminary investigations into threats allegedly aimed at club president Pablo Longoria by Marseille supporters. Just to add further fuel to the chaotic fire, the enigmatic Gennaro Gattuso was then announced as the club's new head coach last week. Really, really box office stuff. And... Taking the customary road to nowhere, step back and looking at the wider picture, how exactly can Marseille's tumultuous past fortnight or so be explained, Dali? Yeah, Michael, I'm going to have a right good go at trying to explain exactly what has unfolded at the Velodrome, but it will be difficult because, as you say, Marseille, they, they never are too far, really, from the headlines. Now, Michael, there has been a real gathering disquiet at Marseille of late, and so the explosive past couple of weeks or so didn't really come as a total surprise in all honesty. Now, the easiest way to explain what has happened is probably to think about things chronologically. So if we think back to Sunday the 17th of September on match day five, Marseille hosted Toulouse and they played out a decidedly dreary, a decidedly dull nil-nil draw and the atmosphere in the velodrome was tense. The fans clearly were not happy with Marcelino's tactics they were not happy with the way the club was playing. And just for some further context as well, the fans were already quite angered by the recent departures of the likes of Dimitri Payet, Matteo Guendouzi and Alexei Sanchez, all of whom had been yeah fan favourites, I think it's fair to say. So the following day, the Monday after that 0-0 draw with Toulouse, the club's hierarchy then met with key supporters at Marseille's training complex. So at that meeting, you had the president, who you mentioned, Michael Pablo Longoria. You had the sporting director, Javier Ribalta. You had the financial director, Stefan Tissier, and the club CEO and strategic director, Pedro. So that meeting turned very sour with the club's owner, the club's American owner, Frank Lecourt, saying that it quickly, quote, transformed into an alarming demonstration of aggression with members of the club's hierarchy subjected to threats of violence, unquote. Now, by the Tuesday, Marcelino is seriously considering his future as manager of the club, given what had happened on Monday night at that meeting with the fans. Marcelino then gives a really quite vague speech to the players telling them about what had happened. And he gives the impression when giving that speech that he's already decided to call it a day. So the next day again on the Wednesday, Marcelino, to nobody's surprise, then resigns after just three months in charge. And he releases a statement stating that the quote, intimidation, threats, insults and slander levelled at the club's hierarchy contributed to a tense climate, uh, unquote. So and I've slightly paraphrased that there, but he said that that made the continuation of his work at the club impossible. 
Now, in the interest of balance, we should note at this point that the supporters groups have denied forcing Marcelino out. So you've had Rashid Zerwal and Christian Castaldo, respective heads of the South Winners and Dodgers fan groups at Marseille. They come out and they say at no time did they make death threats or ask for Marcelino's resignation. Interestingly enough, Michael, there also seems to be division within the support itself. So a group of fans gathered at the training complex. You may have seen the footage of this, Michael. They gathered at the training complex to show their support for Longoria. Whilst online there was a petition calling for the resignation of Zerwal as the head of the South Winners fan group. Those gestures from you anyway are really quite telling in terms of where the fan base as a whole is at. Just shifting our focus back to the folks upstairs at the club, Longoria and the other executives involved in that now infamous meeting all temporarily stepped back from their roles in order to consider their own futures, in order to consider their own roles at the club. And Longoria reportedly offered his resignation to Frank McCourt, but the American owner uh, quite unsurprisingly rejected this. For what it's worth, I think Longoria has actually done a laudable job at Marseille. Some supporters were, however, accusing Longoria of siphoning off funds from transfer dealings and they also suggested that he had appointed Marcelino for not entirely footballing reasons and it had all gotten really quite personal to the extent that Longoria actually even instigated an audit of himself uh, which showed no wrongdoing on his part. I think he even gave over uh, text messages that he'd exchanged with his mother as part of that audit a week after the meeting had taken place, you then have the Marseille prosecutor, Dominique Laurent, announcing that her office has opened up preliminary investigations regarding potential threats aimed at Longoria by Marseille supporters. Now, this isn't the first time, even in the last two years or so, that Marseille fans have made the headlines for all the wrong reasons. If we cast our mind back to... 2021, you might remember that Andre Villas-Boas left the club also fearing for his safety after the fans had stormed the club's training ground and confronted players and staff. The footage from that was really quite something. And then to add to that, you then have Igor Tudor who resigned this summer and he cited the intensity of the role, noting that, quote, one season here is worth two or three seasons in another club, unquote. So there does seem to be a rather sinister pattern emerging here, Michael. In terms of thinking about why this might be happening, prior to Frank McCourt's arrival, the ultras and the supporters groups at Marseille held a lot more influence with a significant say in things like ticketing and things like merchandising. Things have since changed and the fans don't have as much of a say as they would once have had. And that status threat, if we can call it that, coupled with what the fans anyway perceive to be a lack of veritable progress has arguably galvanised and shaped the alleged behaviour from the fans over the last few weeks. Now, we often hear it said that football is nothing without the fans and that statement is, is totally true, totally on board with that statement, even if it is a bit of a cliche, but sometimes fans can let their emotions and their love for their club really impair their judgement and their ability to think logically and sometimes that leads them to do things that when all is said and done, might not actually be in the best interests of the club. Anyway, turning our attention 
back now to the present and to the new man in the dugout. Gennaro Gattuso was, of course, announced as the club's new manager last Wednesday. For me, Michael, appointing a divisive and fiery manager like Gattuso does feel like the sort of move that will either go brilliantly or disastrously. But in any event, yes, it's going to be highly entertaining for the neutral, at least. As a player and as a manager, yeah, drama does seem to have followed Gattuso like a shadow and two stories from his managerial career seem particularly worthy of note now when he was at charge at Sion back in 2013. The club president chaotically sang a song about Gattuso at the club's annual gala only to sack him less than a month later. Gattuso was the, the fifth manager to be sacked by Sion that season alone for what it's worth. And then in 2021, Fiorentina remarkably cut ties with Gattuso just 23 days after he had been hired reportedly following a dispute over which players the club should sign. So yeah, there's there's plenty of drama when it comes to Gattuso. Now, for what it's worth, I think that getting Gattuso in as a manager might actually turn out to be a masterstroke. The fans at the Velodrome need high-octane football, they need passion, they need a team with grit, a team with fight. And they need a manager, above all, whose touchline energy will enable that. In the same way, I suppose, that Dortmund fans have longed for somebody of Jurgen Klopp's ilk since he left the club back in 2015, Marseille fans have also longed for a manager as enigmatic, as capable of getting the fans on side with exciting high-energy football as Bielsa since he and the club parted ways back in 2015 after 13 or so roller coaster months. Now, I'm not saying that Gattuso is on the same level tactically as Bielsa, but there is that fiery side to his personality that might just help him get the Marseille support on board. We've seen footage of Gattuso being very vocal in his first training sessions. We've heard him talking to the press about this Marseille team fighting to the death for each other. We've watched Marseille play out a five-goal thriller away to Monaco in his first game in charge. All of that has given us a decent idea of what we can expect from Marseille under Gattuso, but... Michael, I'm keen to get your take on this one. What can you tell us about Gattuso's tactics and how his time at Marseille might pan out based on his time in charge of Milan and Napoli? Yeah, I'm quite intrigued to see how Gattuso will get on. I mean, you made a really sort of important point with him that, you know, you talk about some of the characters who have had really successful managerial careers up until that uh, periods at Marseille, although I don't think Tudor did that badly, but you know, but not being able to very understandably deal with the noise around the club and the fan behavior. Regarding Gattuso himself, you, you would think that that's something that wouldn't. I mean, when he came in at Napoli and when he came in at Milan, you know, he came in in very difficult circumstances. Napoli kind of at war, um, the players and Derek Laurentis over. De Laurentiis wanting the player to sort of be locked away with Carlo Ancelotti on, I can't remember the exact details, but basically some kind of sort of training ground retreat following a poor spell of results after initially doing well under him. Gattuso came in after Ancelotti, of course, his former manager, and did effectively steady the ship. He got them pushing up back. They, they were a team in mid-table at the time. He got them back towards the European places. And Gattuso's last game at Napoli would have got them Champions League had they not drawn. I think it was against Elas Ramona at the time, and that cost him 
his job. I know Valencia, I know, uh, wasn't a very successful spell despite quite a promising start. And I think the one thing that will work in his favour is that generally where he's gone, especially in his last few stints, he has been able to get a bit of an instant reaction, whether that be at Milan, Napoli or Valencia. Long term, I think there's serious question marks as to how far he can take this Marseille team. But they do have quite an you know extensive squad of players and yeah it's not going to be dull let's say that yeah that's for sure Michael I think Burl you wanted to chip in with some comments here as well yeah obviously he just comes off that spell at Valencia and it sounds familiar I'm not going to lie the kind of way you're describing Gattuso's entrance into Marseille and obviously Marcelino was before at Valencia before Gattuso as well obviously with some some managers in between but Gattuso for me from very much the outside, it has to be said in terms of his Italian uh, job, so to speak, he he's won that trophy, but it, it kind of just went as expected at Valencia. And Valencia was a tricky situation too. They don't have the quality that Marseille have, but you could always see it kind of coming to an end in the sense that they started off very brightly, very enthusiastic. Gattuso kind of revved up his players and really got a reaction out of them. They were playing some quite nice, ambitious football, but you knew, you were never quite sure if the substance was going to be there. And sure enough, come January, it tailed off. And and yeah, the Valencia board and Gattuso, I don't think they were getting on by the time that they that he left. But I think he, he jumped ship before it started sinking, to be perfectly honest. And it was only a rescue job from Ruben Baraja that really saved Valencia from relegation after Gattuso was there. Absolutely. I think the parallels, actually, as you say, Barlow, particularly in terms of the environment, in which Gattuso arrives at Marseille, there are parallels between Marseille and Valencia there. So yeah, let's just let's just see how it pans out. I think it's going to be fun if nothing else. And we've spoken obviously about that passion and that fight that Gattuso was really played on in his early days in charge of Marseille, but that will only get you so far. And yeah, I'm not convinced either that Gattuso will bring long-term sustainable success to Marseille. That said, you do get the impression that in the short term anyway, Gattuso will at least get the fans excited about the team and at least partially back on board. Now, they welcome Brighton, the Havre, Lyon and Lille to the Velodrome over the next month or so. So there's a chance for Gattuso to make a real statement and pick up some big results with those home fixtures. If nothing else, it will be fiery, it will be passionate and yeah, it'll give us plenty to talk about on the podcast. Okay, we're going to draw our analysis of Marseille to a conclusion. For now, we'll no doubt revisit Marseille on the podcast at some point later in the season. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to fill up our water bottles and we'll come back to look at the latest goings on in Italy. We'll be right back. Napoli have felt like an ever-present on the podcast agenda this season and once again they've crowbarred their way into the running order. This time we're talking about the club's media output and star striker Victor Ozyman. What on earth is going on in Naples, Michael, and how has this whole debacle even happened? Yeah, the how is really difficult slash confusing one to explain because it's been truly farcical what's happened in Naples. It 
it's just over a week old. It will be close to two weeks old by the time the podcast comes out, just to bear in mind, we're recording on a Tuesday about an hour before Napoli's game versus Real Madrid in Champions League and Simeon's named in that starting lineup. And anyway, going back, Simeon played for Napoli, obviously star striker will kind of come on to his role shortly, but he played for Napoli. I've had a mixed start to the season under Rudy Garcia. It's safe to say something we discussed quite a bit and they drew away to Bologna nil-nil in what was another quite disappointing result for them, which meant they'd also gone three league games without a victory also. But crucially for the context of this in this match, Victor Simeon had a penalty that he won and he then fired the penalty wide. That was Sunday the 24th of September. And shortly after, in the coming days after that penalty, the official club social media for the TikTok account for Napoli released um, a couple of TikToks. One of them was of Asimian missing the penalty with a sort of squealing high-pitched voice saying, give me penalty, please. And the other one said, I am a coconut. And yeah, given that this is, you know, Napoli's own club media, which has done this to, to Rosimian, as I'm sure most of our listeners, you know, anyone with sort of a vague interest in European football will be aware that this is kind of sent shockwaves, not just across Italian football. In fact, you could maybe argue that's where it sort of had sent the least shockwaves um, in this whole debacle, but certainly to football fans across Europe and beyond. And that beyond is another sort of crucial factor, which we'll come on to very shortly. But it's then led to this sort of huge tension between Victor Asimian and the club and Asimian's representatives in particular. Uh, the representatives said that they didn't feel that they were considering, well, they said that they were considering legal action, whilst inferring that Asimian's future was looking almost certainly to lie away from the club at times. And Asimian also removed all association with Napoli from his Instagram account, which, you know, is a kind of tit for tat you might see in the social media age. And I think this is very much a saga that you would have never called about five or 10 years ago. But nevertheless, we are in a bit, a slightly better position in regards to sort of the club and the players' relations now. And Simeon has scored in two subsequent games and victories over Udinese and Lecce, where Napoli have recovered some form. And he also put out quite a passionate statement stating his support for the fans, his support for the club. And on the face of it, you know, if you sort of did a timeline of events that has happened, the situation itself is quite resolved and there now seems to be that sort of unified focus in wanting for the club and the player to move on going forwards. But I think when you look deeper into maybe some of the underlying issues that led to this between the club and player, and certainly the social media accounts and the player and the attitudes towards the player and the response by the club, I think there's serious, serious questions to still be asked. So, Important context regarding this was during the summer, Victor Simeon, well, let's start with last season. Simeon, record transfer for Napoli. He's been crucial in them winning the league and he formed a formidable partnership with Carici Carrara Some a partnership that really, you know, shocked football fans. Were fantastic to see they had a brilliant combination between the two of them and probably the two standout players in Serie A 
last season, maybe Rafa Leal was in that conversation as well. And then over the summer, Napoli naturally wanted to sort of secure his long-term future with the club. There's been a lot of transfer interest in Vittorio Simeon at the same time. And in the end, the best thing they kind of offered him was a two-year contract extension on not much improved terms from what we gather. And that didn't go through, which in itself has caused a bit more tension with, you know, we talked about Marseille on this podcast so far, and maybe a similarly passionate fan base for better or for worse and whether passionate is the right word at times I think that's another question to be had also and going on from this that has led to some tension with Asimian going into the season he's actually you know he's got five league goals in seven games he started the season well but yeah then suddenly you've had these two incidents which have happened there in regards to social media and then when the club um, they eventually did release a statement. They said that it was never the club's intent to offend Victor and that should he have perceived it that way, their social media posts have been deleted. And I believe the social media manager, although this is different with r- reports, both in Italy and sort of international press, that the social media manager has been fired as well. And yeah, not there's not one bit of an apology from the club um there's sort of recent comments from Aurelia De Laurentiis the club's owner which said that he in the summer he said that he would never sign an African player again due to their AFCON commitments saying that they're the suckers for paying wages when players are representing a country you know something that's been a constant within football and rightly so for representing both club and country and international commitments um but yeah, once again, well, the, the kind of situation Simeon's found himself in maybe is that he's loved by large members of the fans. It seems that he's a very popular player in the dressing room. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of figures at the club have a lot of love um, for what he's done as well. But then there are another big section of the fans, um, media, both Italian media and Napoli media, uh, where they maybe don't recognise him in terms of whether there's sort of racial undertones to this I think there's you know you certainly look at some of the TikToks both of which have, uh, the coconut one had been a bit of a trend not that that excuses it but um, I, I, th- I think there's, there's certainly an argument there to be said that there the were racial undertones towards that as well and I think that's probably particularly felt by defenders of a simian in the fact that you know Carrara Carrara Skelly has had this sort of Carrara Donna um, name given to him, the heir of Maradona. There was a huge mural um, depicting that as well. And Simeon's just not had that same recognition. And, you know, all signs suggest that this, although for the time being on the face of it, this has been resolved and you'd be really surprised, although you certainly wouldn't put it out of question, that we won't have to see a repeat of this really sorry incident. But I, I, I certainly get the suspicion that this will be a Simeon's last season with Napoli. And, you know, it might be once he departs that from the player's side, at least we hear a little bit more about this saga. But, yeah, it's been truly awful. And, yeah, I, I don't have any sort of sympathy with Napoli as a club right now. Um, for, and it sort of seems to undone a lot of the goodwill they built up through what they achieved last season. 
On a more positive note, Michael, we haven't looked at Fiorentina since their last gasp Europa Conference League defeat to West Ham in June's final. This time around, they've got off to a flyer sitting level with third place Napoli with 14 points from seven games. Once again, there seems to be clear signs of progression under Vincenzo Italiano. But are we now witnessing his best Laviola side yet? Yeah, potentially. I mean, certainly domestically, I think it's the best start they've made under Italiano in the three seasons that they've had him. There has been that argument for constant progress, getting him back into Europe in the first season. Qualifying for Europe again, albeit at the expense of um, Juventus after they missed out due to the Capital Games case, the Plus Valenze case last season that we discussed a lot. Uh, but this season, yes, 14 points from seven games. Uh, the goal difference isn't as good as some of the teams above them, including Napoli's, which means they don't currently sit in the top four. But, yeah, for all intents and purposes, this is a really exciting Fiorentina team who, despite losing Sofia and Amrabat, who was key to their success last season, they've generally kept a lot of that same squad together. And I think one of the things that I've been really impressed with Fiorentina over the two seasons well, the third season now that they've had um, Italiano is that they're a team that have traditionally been sort of had their squad gutted over recent seasons and whatnot. But I think there's a real case to be made that they've actually sort of made net gains in the strength of their squad. Um, we're starting to see that on the pitch and it was really evident in the 3-0 victory uh, on Monday night over Cagliari where Mbala and Zola scored. He was, um, a player's hit double figures numerous times for Spezia, individually crucial for them staying in Serie A up until last season when they went down in the playoff but player who was also you know had his sort of breakthrough in Serie A under Vincenzo Italiano before his move to Fiorentina so he scored his first first goal which was the third a lovely chipped effort um, from that another player who's joined the first team squad this season is a young fullback called Michael Coyote um, an Italian and it, it, well Italy youth um, Fullback, a very attack-minded fullback as well, but we saw the very best of him at both ends during the game. He made a crucial goal and clearance at 1-0 and then um, set up his cross-led to an own goal, which doubled Laviola's lead in that victory over them. But he's um, actually come from a team called Gazzano in Serie D a few years ago. Serie D, yeah, 166 teams I make of it there at the moment, which gives a bit of an indication to how well scouted he was, you know, it's um, a fourth tier in Italy's regionalised into nine different regional divisions. And he scored the winning goal for the Italy under-19s in the European under-19s championship final over the summer as well. And he certainly seems to have been recognised for that contribution and across the whole tournament by Italiano. And he's becoming more and more of a fixture of this team. But yeah, despite that departure of Amrabat, there's been some really exciting additions elsewhere. Maxim Lopez, who wasn't even starting on Monday, from Sassuolo, who's been maybe the most exciting talent they had last season. And then they've also got Fabiano Parisi, a player who has um, joined from nearby Empoli, who yeah, we were waxing lyrical about um, last season. And I think his departure has certainly been missed as their team struggling towards the bottom end of Serie A right now and yeah they're back in Europe in the Europa Conference League and I think there's a real sense that Italiano could make a push for a top six finish whether top four is going to be too much I probably think so right now but 
similar to what like what Roberto De Zerbi had a Sassuolo, I think we're maybe starting to see more and more parallels between that and Italiano's Fiorentina. And, you know, De Zerbi's the manager on everyone's lips at the moment. And I think there will come a point where there will be more eyes in Italian football as to see when the next manager, you know, we are seeing a di very different brand of football starting being introduced into Serie A at the moment. And I think Italiano certainly, you know, aged just 45, kind of had increasing success throughout his career as well. And, you know, I'm sure they got to two cup finals last season. They'll be aiming some form of silverware, something to cap off their achievements. But this may very well be Italiano's last season at the club. And whilst sixth would be an excellent season under them, and I'm sure would lead to maybe a bigger point of him elsewhere, there is potentially the possibility of them um, going on to achieve something rather special this season. So, yeah. Still got a few issues to resolve. The high line um, is something that they may be still very susceptible to teams on the counter-attack, as we saw when Inter Milan tore them apart 4-1 earlier this campaign. But other than that, that's their only league defeat so far. Four wins, two draws, and a, and a defeat. So, yeah, um, really exciting start for Fiorentina. And if you thought that the bubble had burst after that Europa Conference League final last season against West Ham, certainly not the case. And I really recommend tuning in to La Viola sometime soon. One of the three teams yet to win a game in Syria are Udinese, who should perhaps be concerned given last season's acceptable season was based off a fantastic start. In 17th place with four points for the first time in Ali's lifetime, Andrea Sotti's side could be facing relegation. Should the Pozzo Zebrete have enough quality to avoid a battle at the bottom? And which players will be pivotal to that outcome, Michael? Yeah, well, one of the players who will be really pivotal to start with is Gerard Delafeo, a player who has been out since the beginning of this year through after having knee surgery and was very much playing sort of the best football of his career. But he was a crucial part of that team we discussed around this time last year on the podcast where Udinese were actually, I think they were in third place at the time. They made a sensational start to the season and Gerard Delafeo have partnered really effectively with Betu, who is now at Everton. I'm sure many will be aware, not had a bit of a mixed start to his time in England, but they have ended up losing a couple of key players last summer. You know, Betu's departed. He They got good money in for him and Rodrigo Becao, really important player at the other end of the pitch, an imposing centre-back, has joined Fenerbahce for around about £8 million euros and given the sort of vital importance those two players had and Delafeo had at the top end as well and he's had a big injury to deal with and it's not quite clear as to when he will be returning yet Udinese have really struggled so far this season and Andrea Sotil the manager um, who is now in his second season after that really impressive start to last season before the team did enough to be comfortable but certainly faded away from the promising signs that they initially displayed they've really struggled. They've only scored three league goals so far. Two of them have come from Lamar Samadzic, uh, a 24-year-old Serbian international, was a German in youth international and then switched allegiance to Serbia earlier this year. And he um, he scored in a 4-1 defeat to Napoli, where he scored actually a fantastic goal where he danced around the defence. I, I honestly think if you saw Messi score that goal, you wouldn't bat an eyelid, you know. It was... Um, very sort of messy esque goal in the way he was able to glide past players. Although he is six foot, so maybe 
that's something that maybe looks slightly different, but a really elegant, um, lovely ball playing midfield, attacking midfielder and to watch. And a player who was really important this time last season, but was becoming breaking through at that point, whereas he started to establish himself more. And then they managed to rescue a point um, by scoring two goals, well, scoring one and benefiting from an own goal in their 2-2 draw versus Genoa at the weekend. But really, even in that game versus Genoa, they could have been, they could have lost that game quite heavily. You know, Albert Goodmanson, an exciting young Icelandic player, first Icelandic player to score, two goals in a Serie A match, and uh, Mattia Retegui, player we've discussed quite a bit, he, um, the young Argentine-born Italian international, he, they they both tore Udinese to pass at time, and it was only through a set piece at the end that they were able to draw a level through an own goal from Genoa, and that has given them those four points, which has just elevated them to 17th in the league table, but yeah, really worrying signs. I think one of the worrying aspects of them so far has been the transfer policy. I mean, Udinese's transfer policy has been very hit and miss. You know, a team renowned for signing exceptional young players, especially from South America and um, from Balkans. But they've also got a bit of history given their sort of ownership model, um, especially with Watford, for bringing in some players who have been deemed surplus to requirements at Watford and vice versa at times. And Sort of seen here, they brought in this summer, the likes of Domingos Keane, Maduka Okoy, both players who have had international experience, um, whether at youth or um or senior, Christian Cabaselli as well. I don't I think these are when you talk about the impact of the players going in the likes of Rodrigo Beckham and Better, these are quite underwhelming signings. Jordan Zamora joined from Bournemouth on a free, Etienne Camera joined for two million euros from Huddersfield, Keenan Davis, he joined from Aston Villa, but spent last season on loan at Watford and been a bit of a journeyman across England during this time. So, you know, if you're going to watch Udinese, you're going to see a team that's probably got quite a few familiar uh, players, especially if you watch English football, Martin Payero, I should probably add as well, spent last season on loan at Boca Juniors, where he, from what I gather, did quite well, but never really um, did much during his time at Middlesbrough. He's also there. Too. And yeah, a, a team that's really failing to inspire at the moment. They're really lacking creativity since the departure or the enforced departure of Delafeo. Um, very little goal threat. They've been looking to go very direct at times. Um, they're quite uh, tight at times. They're quite a difficult team to break down. But as soon as somebody is able to sort of def- disrupt the defensive system, as we saw with Genoa, with the individual quality that likes a Goodmanson and Rategui possess, they're really susceptible um, to yeah being in quite a bit of trouble in that sense. So, yeah, it's a big moment for Satil. They've got uh, a mixed bag of games coming up soon. And I think if they're not able to get a win in the next two or three, at which point we'll have 10 games played, I think he could be one of the next managers to be facing the sack. Interesting, as always, Michael. Yeah, a real comprehensive overview of the latest goings on in Italy. Okay, we are going to take a quick break now. Rudy Barlow is primed and ready to tell us all about the latest developments in La Liga. We'll be right back. Taki Fusa Kubo is a player that has made for much conversation in recent years and perhaps he is the biggest talent to come out of 
Japan since arguably Hidetoshi Nakata. While Kubo was being spoken about as a bust just 14 months ago when he joined Real Sociedad, but eight games into the new season, you think he might be taking another leap into the top level of football this season? Yeah, we spoke about him last season, didn't we? And he was impressive last season. He became a kind of part of Real Sociedad's team, a regular in their team and a regular threat for them and, and a player that you could tune in to watch on his own. You could tune in for Kubo and generally be pretty entertained. But this season, he's really kind of grabbed it by the, by the scruff of the neck. And Real Sociedad, I mean, we've spoken before about how they're perhaps lacking a goal scorer. And Kubo is taking it upon himself to be that goal scorer. I mean, Mikel Arjavar is finally finding some form. Just as we speak, they're actually tuning up. Remarking to Ali, I, c- I know the scoreline because I can hear in a bar just down below me that I didn't know was a Real Sociedad bar, but I can hear the cheers kind of faintly in the background for them scoring against Salzburg in the Champions League as we record. But but yeah, Kubo's been the star of the show for them and, and a player that has himself noted on various occasions that he thought it was his last chance, somebody that was kind of moving around these these pretty good sides, sides with good managers, Unai Emery, Javier Aguirre, um, teams that you had faith in that would get the best out of him if there was something to get out of him. And on each occasion, managers pretty pointedly kind of criticised him for whether it was attitude, whether it was his work rate, whether it was a side of his game that wasn't quite there. But seeing that consistent form from him, from him and Oleg last season, you get the impression that, yeah, this is a player that can can perhaps develop into someone that's at the top of the game. But right now, I'd say he's playing some of the best football in Spain. There's been two matches this season where Jude Bellingham has kind of been truly outshone or a match where you could make a case that he wasn't the, the best player in the game. One of those was against Atletico Madrid, where they were beaten 3-1, and the other one was against Real Sociedad. Even though uh, Real Madrid won 2-1, I was at the burnabout for it, and it was genuinely electric to watch, and it was riveting. There was a stage in that first half where it was it was like having a genuine superstar on the right-hand side, because Real Sociedad's game plan consisted of keeping the ball, consisted of opening up space and kind of cutting through the Real Madrid midfield that really couldn't keep up with them at times. But essentially, the end point of that kind of moving the ball through midfield, taking kind of one, two touches, was to spread it out to Kubo in in space. He gave Fran Garcia a nightmare. Fran Garcia hasn't had the same protagonism in the Real Madrid team since Eduardo Camavinga started against Girona and, and Furlong Mendy has started since as well. And part of the reason is because Kubo really exposed him and he, he made him look really kind of average, it has to be said. And Frank Garcia is not necessarily the best defender, but he is quick and he is strong. And Kubo really just kind of left him standing on, on various occasions. And he ended up with two assists, Garcia, in that match, which um, was, was to his credit and perhaps saved him when he ended up coming off. But Carlo Ancelotti did take him off for the first final kind of 20, 30 minutes because he wanted Nacho to go on against Kubo, who did, to be fair, fade a little bit at the Bernabeu. And I think that was as much down to kind of the international break as much as anything. But he was at the heart of everything good that they did. They scored not directly from an assist, but Andrew Balanachea scored the opener from him cutting Real Madrid open. He should have had another assist. Mikel Marino headed and it forced a very good save from Kepa. 
and and he scored an absolutely brilliant goal. It ended up brushing off Mikel Oyarzabal, but it was one of those goals that would have belonged in an Aryan Robin highlight reel where he cuts in and he's you know that he's going to go one way or the other, that he's you know exactly what he's going to do, but stopping it is a different matter. And Real Madrid couldn't do that. And increasingly, for Dake Kubo, that is the case where teams know what he's going to do, but they're almost powerless to stop him. And it's it's at the point, um and and I think it was La Liga Systems on Twitter said this that he's almost at the point now where he's a danger every time he gets on the ball and there's no kind of rest for the defense in terms of kind of numbers. He's got five goals. He's joint second in La Liga for, for goals. He's got an assist. He's got 0.38 goals per shot, which is fifth in the league. He's top for goals versus XG, which is 3.7, which shows you that he's scoring from chances that aren't necessarily that good of chances, but he's creating them for himself. He's sixth for carries in, into the penalty area with 12. He's eighth for progressive carries with 28. And I think if you look at the derby as well, where they beat Athletic Club 3-0, Iñaki Williams, who I'd commented before on, on the La Liga Lowdown podcast, that he's been having a start of the season where if he could keep this form up and he was 21, he would be worth about 80 million because he was binning goals. He was at the heart of everything, causing so much danger. And even when Kubo perhaps wasn't necessarily dominating the game in that Basque derby, Kubo gets one chance and he slots at home with so much composure that it doesn't even look as if he has to think about it. And this is a player that for the longest time was kind of in that almost Dembele zone. I think that's maybe a little bit unkind to Taki Kubo because he does take better decisions. But in the sense that you always kind of knew he had a spark, you knew he had something that you knew that he could uh, take on a player, beat a man, have a flick, but you never knew what was going to happen when it came to that final third, that final kind of key crucial decision. And now Kubo is producing, he's turning that into effective performances. And it really is, it's a delight to watch. He's got character if you, if you, listen to him after the games he's he's funny he, he's got a bit of a swagger about him not an arrogance at all but he's got personality I mean when he when he messes things up he's he's pretty honest about it he's brutal and he said yeah I've gotta gotta be better you can see that kind of drive has been instilled with him to reach not necessarily perfection but to reach that kind of top echelon because he is quite hard on himself but uh but yeah he's funny he's got personality his teammates like him He's really kind of won over the entire, uh, the entirety of the Real Arena, which, yeah, just 14, 15 months ago was pretty unthinkable. So, so hats off to Google, and I'd, I'd strongly advise people to tune in to watch him because I think Real Madrid's have a fifty percent sell-on clause for Kubo, and his release clause is sixty million, and if he keeps up this form all season it will get to the point where it would be bad business for them not to exercise that clause and, and pay 13 million for them, even if it is just to sell him on. So just really fantastic player. And, and I'd like to watch one of the most fun parts of this La Liga season. Lovely stuff. Barlow, yeah, Real Sociedad's very own star boy, you might say. Now, elsewhere, Atletico Madrid have a game in hand, but lie five points behind rivals Real Madrid in first place. They have been averaging an injury per match so far this season as circumstance tries to derail the dark horses of the La Liga title race. Why then, Barlow, are Atletico 
the most impressive of the big three for you so far this season? Yeah, well, let's look at the two games that they dropped points in. One of them was Valencia. They were beaten 3-0. They were out-competed and outshone, and it was a bit of an off day. It was coming off an international break as well, and Cholo seems to have managed to put that down to the FIFA virus, as it's called in Spain, and really kind of uh, write it off. And the other one was in a wage draw against Betis on a Sunday night, a hot Sunday night in Seville. That's not a bad point. It's not a bad result. It's the sort of result that any big team could suffer in inverted commas against Betis. And I think naturally a large part of this has to come back to the derby win. 3-1 over Real Madrid. They were 2-0 up and then Real Madrid get back into it through Tony Kroos, but uh, ultimately seal it through Marata Brace Griezmann also on the score sheet. But I, I want to first mention Cadiz because they were 2-0 down at home on Sunday night. And Chulo Simeone, for better or for worse, has has made his name on miserly football, he's made his name on a team that keeps clean sheets, that doesn't necessarily have the firepower to to go gung-ho or to really go after teams. And even if you look at their second kind of title win under Cholo, they were they had goals in them. They did score goals. There was Marco Chirente chipping in, obviously Luis Suarez at the time. Um, and they had kind of comebacks, especially if you look towards their kind of later stages of that season. But you never necessarily had a sense that it was comfortable for them to do that. It was always a struggle. It was always kind of a backs-to-the-wall battle to do so. And against Cardiff, they go 2-0 down. Cardiff take their two kind of big chances off the mark. And, and Atleti had missed chances too. And generally, if you miss a couple of chances and the opposition takes a couple the game is kind of uphill from that point. And it looks, you, you get that feeling, you get that run run, as they call it in Spain, where the fans get a little bit nervous, the players get a little bit edgy, a pass goes awry. But there was no panic from Atleti. The fans were totally behind them. They ripped apart what is a decent carry defence, playing quick and incisive football. They've been dealing with injuries all season. They've been going at about an injury a game and still managing to kind of pull this off. So once they get Rodrigo de Paul back and get him kind of more into the system, Coque is going to be fitter next time as well. And Griezmann, again, with the exception of Bellingham and, and perhaps one or two others alongside him in terms of that level, Kubo included, he looks like the best player in La Liga again. I mean, he's the most complete, in my view. He does the most things. And even if their defence is not necessarily watertight, they all look comfortable in their system. Even Morata is in kind of lethal goal-scoring form. And we know that for Atleti, this will be about sustaining it over the season. They have a shorter squad. They have injury-prone players. There are issues in this side. But you look at their rivals. You look at Real Madrid, and we know about their problems. We know that they themselves don't have a striker that's necessarily reliable all season. We know that Barcelona, defensively, are, are they're making a choice between either being quite good going forward or being a little bit or, or being a little bit more solid at the back and whether that they can develop that remains to be seen. But all three of these big three have issues. They have holes in their side. And Atleti have more than enough arguments, I think, to to say that they can pull this off. And yeah, the performance against Real Madrid was highly impressive. I think the performance against Cadiz was just as encouraging for an Atleti side that would generally struggle in that kind of situation. Lovely stuff, as always. But, oh, yeah, keen to see how that Atletico Madrid side fare as 
the season goes on. Okay, we are going to end part three there. We're going to take a short break before coming back for part four. And we're going to look at Union Berlin, who have endured, yeah, a tricky, a tricky last few games in the Bundesliga anyway. We'll be right back. Union Berlin's remarkable odyssey from the depths of German football to the Champions League group stage has been well documented on this podcast and beyond. Indeed, only a heartbreaking strike from Jude Bellingham in the 94th minute prevented the capital side from picking up a memorable point away to Real Madrid on match day one of European football's elite club competition. Domestically, however, Urs Fischer's side have stumbled to four league defeats in a row, sliding down to 11th in the Bundesliga table. Does that run of results represent merely a temporary setback for Union, or are we perhaps seeing the start of a longer-term malaise at the Stadion and the Alten Försterei? Yeah, rather you than me trying to pronounce the stadium name Barlow, I think <laughs> it's taken me quite some time to try to yeah get my head around how to pronounce it when it's not written down in front of me. So yeah, I thought I would I'd bow to your German expertise. So yeah, to answer your question, well, I suppose before we get into the nuts and bolts of this poor run for Union, before we really answer your question, Barlow, I think the first question we perhaps ought to consider is, does it even really matter how well or not Union are playing. The Union fans have been so unwavering, so unconditional, shall we say, in their support through the good times and the bad times. I'm inclined to say their form on the pitch is secondary, in all honesty. I think it was maybe the piece that, or one of the pieces rather, that Stuart James has been doing for the Athletic uh, on Union Berlin in their Champions League campaign. Uh, which featured a line from a fan who said you could blindfold one of the supporters for the duration of any Union game and because of the noise, you wouldn't, or rather they wouldn't be able to tell if the team had won or lost. And you do get clubs like that. I think Strasbourg is another example, having sat through the second half of their dreadful game against Lons on Friday night. Absolutely appalling performance. We won't go on to that just now, but the fans were still just about singing with the same enthusiasm, with the same energy. So you do get clubs like that. And I think it's particularly laudable when you see the states in which some supporters get themselves. But anyway, Union themselves, yeah, their story is unique. And we've heard it several times over, both on this podcast and elsewhere, since they were promoted to the Bundesliga for the first time in their history back in 2019. But I do Barlow just want to spotlight a few things which reinforce this really quite remarkable tale. Now, firstly, the contrast between Union and Real Madrid, who were, of course, Union's hosts on their Champions League debut, is quite stunning. And that contrast is perhaps best illustrated by the two clubs' respective stadium revamps and the costs therein. So, The ongoing refurbishment of the Bernabeu is set to cost more than a billion euros, there or thereabouts, Barlow. Uh, You can correct me on that, but I'm pretty sure that was the figure that I had read. Whereas the project manager for Union's stadium redevelopment back in the early 2000s was told that she had no budget for personnel and no budget for equipment. Um, So, yeah, quite something, quite the contrast there. 
Secondly, Union's striker Kevin Behrens spent most of his career in the regional leagues of German football before getting his big break a couple of years ago with his move to the capital and becoming a cult hero of sorts at the stadion and their Alten Forsterei. I think I nailed the pronunciation there, Paolo, just about. Um, so Behrens scored a hat-trick of headers against Mainz on the opening day of the season and then quite wonderfully proceeded to cycle home, uh, which I think is quite something, particularly when we think about Neymar, who took that private jet and sat on a gold-padded leather seat, apparently, according to some reports. Anyway, Adam Bates, who is um, apparently a fan of the podcast, or so Michael tells us, he wrote a terrific piece for Sky Sports talking about Behrens and how the 32-year-old is Union Berlin in microcosm so do go and check that article out from Adam it's a terrific read about Behrens and Union more generally also Barlow without wanting to turn this into a history lesson we really can't do a section on Union without mentioning how the club represented a firm and steadfast opposition to the Stasi in the 1980s with many of Union's fans growing up behind the Berlin Wall we also can't do a section without mentioning the fact that with people paid to give blood in Germany, Union fans queued up to donate blood to help fund the club's registration with the DFB in 2004. And I think we also probably have to mention the fact that the fans also helped to renovate the stadium, uh, apparently committing over 140,000 hours of free labour in order to build the stadium under Alton Forster. That's me. I'm getting a little bit too confident there, Barlow. Uh, and, and the stadium then reopened its doors in 2009 following that monumental effort from the fans. So, yeah, Union really are one of the most fascinating clubs in world football. Anyway, to answer your question, Barlow, and I've digressed quite significantly there, but anyway, to answer your question, there has been this poor run of results in the Bundesliga and the wheels. Yeah, they do seem to be coming off domestically anyway. Perhaps most worryingly, the 1-0 loss to Heidenheim on the weekend almost felt inevitable. Now, I'd actually gambled somewhat going into that game. I'd kind of done a bit of my research and I'd padded out the question uh, before that game took place. And I was hoping that the slightly gloomy narrative would develop further. And that is exactly what happened. And we should at this point, take nothing away from Frank Schmidt's Heidenheim, uh, who are carving out a fairy tale story of their own. But Union, for me anyway, should really be looking at coming away from that game with all three points. Now, on the one hand, to be fair to Union, in two of those four games they've lost on the bounce, they did register more expected goals than their opponents, namely Wolfsburg and Heidenheim. However, on the other hand, something is clearly not right at Union Berlin, and there are several explanations for this. Firstly, Barlow, a few people have noted that Union did not do the recruitment early enough this season. Now, Urs Fischer is a real advocate of his club getting their summer business done early so that he can work with the whole squad in the pre-season training camp and fine-tune the team system, really get the team drilled. However, this time around, Leonardo Bonucci was only brought in at the start of September and Kevin Volland and Robin Gersens were signed just days before the first Bundesliga game of the season. On paper, yep, those are all terrific signings and a real sign of how far Union have come as a club, but it was always going to take them time to integrate and get up to speed with what Fischer wants them to do for the team. 
Leonardo Benucci in particular looks like he's struggling to adapt to the Bundesliga. He was arguably at fault for both goals against Hoffenheim, giving away the penalty for the first and getting caught out for the second. He has, without doubt, had a terrific career, but you do wonder if he just isn't quite good enough anymore to play at the top level. Elsewhere, the team have been without the influential Rani Kadira, brother, of course, of Sami Kadira. And and Rani Kadira, of course, played such a key role at the base of Union's midfield last season. He has unfortunately been out injured since mid-August with a calf injury. If Fisher could pick out a single player in that Union squad that he would rather not lose to injury, you would imagine he would probably go with Kadira, given his overall importance to the functioning of the team. I don't think it's possible to overstate just how much of a loss he has been for the team's cohesion. He is arguably the linchpin. So the sooner Union can get him back fit and back in the squad, the better. There's also a feeling, Barrow, that something isn't quite right tactically. Now, Peter Weiss has spoken for a few weeks on the excellent Bully News website about Union's struggles, and he's put those struggles down to some questionable team selections from Urs Fischer, coupled with the fact that Union's system can be quite predictable and can have its limitations, particularly in attack. And those limitations were perhaps clearest to see in the first half of the 2-0 loss against Hoffenheim on match day five. As soon as Hoffenheim went up 1-0 through Andre Kramerich, it felt almost inevitable that they would go on and seal the win because Union were, for the most part, so uninspiring in attack. Now, I say this in the least disparaging way possible and notwithstanding the limitations I've just referenced, but Union are the Bundesliga's best at getting the basics right. Adam Bate spoke in the article I mentioned earlier on Union about the team's kick and rush style and how that style has really unsettled the entire Bundesliga. They sit deep, they soak up pressure and then they counter at speed or get the ball wide and overwhelm the penalty box with quality crosses. And that style really flies in the face of what we tend to expect from Bundesliga sides, but it has worked absolute wonders for them over the last three or four years. So if they can take a step back, Barlow, if they can recalibrate and get back to doing those basics so well, they should be able to get back on track and start picking up points again. There is also this feeling that, yeah, some time away from the spotlight will actually do them some good. They've enjoyed plenty of attention in recent years and as we've noticed previously on the podcast that actually doesn't sit too well with some sections of the support next up in the league it's a trip to Dortmund before facing an informed Stuttgart side in the capital either side of the upcoming international break so you could be looking potentially at over two months without a league win for Union not quite a crisis yet but certainly at least cause for concern Let's see how they fare. I think as we speak, they're 2-0 up against Braga in the Champions League. So perhaps I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. But yeah, we'll we'll see how, how they respond to this recent poor run in the league. Okay, and on that slightly pessimistic note, uh, I think we will draw the episode to a close. I'll thank Rudy Barlow for your contributions. I'll thank... Michael Jones for your contributions and as always I will thank you the listener for your continued support. Until next time stay safe 
and stay well. Goodbye.